Around AD 67 or 68, we uh, find Peter sitting there more than 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection as a scarred, seasoned servant of Christ writing to the church. He has endured years of suffering, including beatings and death threats lobbed at him by the Sanhedrin and imprisonments like the time he was placed on death row by Herod Agrippa. He had seen good times like the time that Cornelius and his whole family uh, of Romans put their trust in Jesus. He grieved the loss of close friends like James, who was beheaded by King Herod, the same King Herod who had already tried to kill him. So by the time we find Peter writing his last letter in second Peter, he is more or less a year away from being executed by emperor Nero. So when you're reading second Peter, you're reading his last correspondence with the church before he dies. So as we look at this scarred seasoned weathered apostle, one wonders what made it all worth it. Why did he carry those scars? Why did he bear all that suffering? What was it that kept him going through it all? Well, we don't have to wonder because he tells us in second Peter chapter one, verses 16 to 18, Peter looks back on the beautiful memory of standing with Jesus on the mountain that we're going to read about today. And the beauty of his words resonate as he writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we when he received honor and glory from God, the father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Here, Peter elaborates on the center of his hope. Peter, what was it that made you take the whip? What was it that made the cold nights in the prison worthwhile? What was it that made the death threats, the the threats to be stoned, the threats to be crucified? What was it that gave you courage, even in the face of a God-hating Caesar who would eventually crucify you upside down? His answer is simple. I've seen the glory of Christ. I've seen Jesus and his face. I've heard the voice of God proclaiming, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And that's his answer to us. That's what is the secret to him being able to bear his cross. My friends, we've just been told in Matthew 16 that all disciples have crosses to bear. If we are to be disciples of Jesus, we must take up the cross and follow him. And yet it's this text in Matthew 17 that is hugely effective and motivating us to embrace the suffering that awaits us. As we study Jesus' transfiguration in Matthew 17, we're given a preview of our glorious King. And in turn, we are given inspiration to take up our own suffering as we follow him. So in the last section of Matthew, just to kind of, if you're new with us today, we've been walking through Matthew 
for a little over a year. And it's just amazing how God's perfect timing matches what we're going through with every single text. Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ, as the King. Jesus began teaching his disciples that the King must suffer as the Christ. He had to have the cross. Peter obviously struggled with this and attempted to correct Jesus, but was told that anyone who wanted to follow him must be willing to suffer even crucifixion. Now the comparison of discipleship as crucifixion, as we saw just a few weeks ago is a dark metaphor. And to say the least uh, is a dark metaphor to say the least. And by itself, if we had nothing else but Matthew 16, we might be left in some form of despondency, wouldn't we? Can you imagine if the very last words of Jesus or the very last action of Jesus was to tell you that as a disciple, you would suffer some horrendous things and that's it. Well, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus does tell us we must suffer, but then he gives us a glimpse at the reward for why we suffer. He tells us the bitter truth that we are going to bear crosses. And then he gives us a glimpse of his resurrection glory so that we can bear those crosses more effectively. My friends, you will certainly suffer, but your suffering is not in vain because beyond the cross that you carry awaits a resurrection glory in Christ himself. The transfiguration has long been held as a significant moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. We, we all know about the Mount of Transfiguration. We all know about the moment when Jesus is transfigured into this glorious being who is bright and shining and emanating glory. But few of us really understand what's happening on this mountain. Given that Jesus mentions his suffering just right before and then throughout this transfiguration, We have to read the transfiguration in light of his upcoming cross, his soon coming passion and the empty tomb. In many ways, we can think of the visible transformation of Jesus as a preview of what's to happen after the tomb. I mean, the disciples have just had their way uh, destroyed. What they wanted from the Christ has just been obliterated. They wanted a king to reign, to have victory over their enemies, to set up Israel as a glorious kingdom. And they've just been told that Jesus is not going to waylay the Romans. He's not going to embarrass the Pharisees. He's going to die on the cross, suffer, be buried, and rise again. We need some kind of glimpse that that's okay. Some kind of affirmation that that is indeed God's plan. And so the transfiguration is is God's preview of, yes, this is what's going to happen to the Christ. But look at what Christ will be at the resurrection. Now, as a result, I think that Jesus shows us a glimpse of his post-resurrection glory on this mountain. He shows Peter a glimpse of it. And as you are, have already seen in second Peter chapter one, it stayed with Peter throughout his entire life. Can you imagine having seen Jesus in such a way? And then someone threatens you that if you continue to speak the name of Christ, they'll kill you. Having seen the glory of Jesus, having heard the voice of God himself speak about Jesus, Okay, it's worthwhile. 
it's, it's, a, it's a noble cost. To suffer for Jesus, knowing that we have the risen and glorious King is worthwhile. To bear crosses, knowing that we have the risen King who emanates glory and has promised that for us, makes all of our suffering worth it. And so I have a simple hope today. My hope is that as you glimpse Jesus in the text and you come to know Jesus as the son of glory, as the one who emanates the glory of God himself, that we as disciples will be ready to faithfully plod through the miry swamps of suffering. Knowing that we are not called to live in the miry swamps. We are called through the miry swamps to come to the glorious savior who waits on the other side. Now, Matthew is a literary genius. I mean, I, I don't know if you know this about the biblical writers. They weren't some rudimentary elementary writers. They are literary geniuses in the way they work in old themes and echoes and whispers of old redemptive stories into their text. Well, we see Matthew doing that. He weaves Old Testament motifs and themes and details into this transfiguration. And by the end of it, you're left, you're left saying, wow, look at Jesus. So we're going to look at some of these details. We're going to look at some of these themes. First, we have a mountain. Six days after Jesus' discussion about discipleship and crosses, he and three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, ascend the high mountain. Now, from a whole biblical perspective, we know that amazing things happen on mountains. We think of Mount Sinai and God's appearance in a cloud of glory and the way that he spoke in thunder. Or perhaps you think of Mount Carmel and the way that... Uh, Elijah called down fire from God that burnt up the altar. Maybe Mount Horeb, where Elijah spoke with God in a still small voice. The point is, is that as careful Bible readers, we see Jesus ascending this mountain and we're left wondering, okay, what's about to happen? Important men of God have ascended mountains before. How is this time going to be different? In other mountain related stories, The prophet ascends the mountain to see God's glory. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai with the request that he would be able to see God's face, to see God's glory. Ask God explicitly, show me your glory. And he comes down with a face that glows. Just the residual glory of God resting on his face. But then it eventually fades. But that's not what we find happening with Jesus. Jesus doesn't go up the mountain to see God's glory. Jesus goes up the the mountain to display God's glory. He goes up to shine God's glory. He goes up to reveal God's glory, to pull back the veil. And the difference doesn't end there. This is a glory that doesn't fade He doesn't need to come back into God's presence, get a little more of the glory glow, and then come back out. He is the glory glow forever and ever and ever, and it emanates from him. He's not just someone that reflects God's glory. He emits it. It emanates from him, exudes from him. So when we see Jesus with his face shining like a sun, his clothes becoming white as light, We see the Jesus who is the one who is the source of God's glory itself. Perhaps this is what John had in mind when he described in his gospel. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father 
full of grace and truth. Notice that John says we have seen his glory. He doesn't say we have seen God's glory reflected in him. No, it says we have seen his glory. For John, Jesus's glory is God's glory. God's glory is Jesus's glory. Jesus is himself the very radiance of God's glory. My friends, can we, can, I know that this is very cerebral here. I know that it's, it's very abstract to talk about the glory of God. But can we just bask in how amazing this is? Not one single human being in the history of the world has ever emitted God's glory from himself. Again, reflected, yes. Glue, sure. But to shine in and of themselves, that's brand new. I mean, it's almost as if when they see Jesus, they've walked into the Holy of Holies. It's almost when they see Jesus, God himself, and not almost, it is. God himself has made himself known. The subtle detail of Jesus' shining face and white clothes and the fact that this light emanates from him shows us that if you're to behold the glory of God, you must behold it in Christ. My friends, how often do we look underneath other rocks to to find God's glory? Maybe we'll see God's glory here. Maybe we'll see God's glory here. And scripture tells us it is found in no one but Jesus. If you want to see the beautiful sight of God's warm, loving, gracious, bright presence, there's only one place you can go to. Now, in addition to Jesus radiating glory, we find two very significant people talking with him. Can you imagine just walking up the mountain with your Messiah, with your rabbi, and suddenly, out of nowhere, he starts glowing, and then with him show up Moses and Elijah. I mean, that would be the most phenomenal coffee date I think I've ever had. (laughs) I do believe Moses drank coffee, so. Either way... These two discussion partners come up, Moses and Elijah. Now, Matthew himself doesn't tell us what uh, Moses and Elijah and Jesus were talking about, but Luke does. Luke tells us they were talking about his soon coming departure, which in Greek is exodon, his exodus. In other words, Moses, the one who was part of the first exodus, and Elijah, the one who anticipates a second exodus, comes together with the one who's going to bring the ultimate exodus. And they're discussing that. Can you imagine this conversation with Moses saying, you know, I wrote about you long, long ago. Can you tell me how you feel about the upcoming cross? Can you imagine Elijah saying, I called people to repentance because of this very moment. I knew you were coming. And here you are. I mean, both of these prophets, Moses and Elijah, had ascended mountains in search for God's glory. And now here they are on the mountain with the one who is God's glory himself. Moses wanted to see God's face and God said, you can't, you'll die, but I will pass by you and you will see a glimpse of my glory. Now he sees the face of God unveiled. And all of us are left wondering, wow, 
There are many prophets in Israel's Old Testament days, but these particular prophets represent the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament testimony of the one who was to come. Moses is often associated with the law, right? So you, you talk about the law, you're, gonna, you're bound to talk about Moses, who's the one that gave the law on the, on the tablets. Um, and it, it, you also think of this prophet-like, uh, this Moses-like prophet that's to come from Moses. He spoke of him in Deuteronomy 18.15. And it's this prophet, this Moses-like prophet that everyone is supposed to listen and obey the word of God. And then we get to Elijah, who's symbolic of repentance. I mean, this is the prophet who called people to repent. So you get law and repentance right here. Okay, the two prophets that preach these, these, these are the mascots of the Old Testament prophets. With them being there, these two representatives are representing the entire prophetic testimony. Nathan, David, I mean, you, you name it, any Old Testament prophet, they're all represented here with these two prophets. And as these two prophets speak with Christ, we see that the entire prophetic testimony is fulfilled in Jesus. Everything they said. My friends, we as Westerners, number one, we don't give too much serious thought to prophecy. That seems hokey and really, really old anyway. But to the early church... The fact that Jesus fulfilled the word of God as spoken in the prophets was a phenomenal thing. Let me just paint the picture. Your Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi spans 4,000 years. 4,000 years. It was written by various different voices. You get regal kings like David, right? You get tree shepherds, tree, tree uh, people, arborists, I guess is what you call them, <laughs> like Amos. I mean, that guy, his job was to pluck figs off of a tree. You get people who married prostitutes like Hosea. You get stuttering prophets like Moses. And you get all this prophetic testimony and all these various people from kings to poor people Spread over 4,000 years. And guess what? They all speak with one unified voice. There is one to come who will crush the head of the serpent, who will restore God's blessing in the world, will bring everlasting shalom, and will turn back sin and death itself. And there stands Jesus. This is the one for whom the whole world has waited for. The one whom all the prophets searched and inquired carefully. So as to know what time he would suffer and how he would suffer and who he would be. And now here they are standing on the mountain with him. Now, Peter sees Jesus standing with Moses and Elijah. And I want to cut Peter some slack here. I'm not sure what I would have said. Okay. So before we get into Peter's offer and what he says, I'm just the dumb sort of guy that would have said something maybe even dumber. Okay. So I just just want to be clear. Let's cut Peter some slack here. What he says is actually not that dumb. He's, he's, he's actually being pretty smart. He knows his Bible. When he sees Peter, Jesus, and Elijah all talking together, and he sees Jesus shining like the Shekinah glory of God from the old Testament, he offers to build three tents. He says, it's good. You, you brought us here. We can be the ones to build the tents. What, what does he mean by tents? Why does he think tents would be appropriate? Well, he sees the glory that's emanating from Jesus. And in the entire biblical testimony, there's only one place that that glory belongs in a tabernacle. And so he's offering great. 
brand new glory, amazing glory with a man. Let's build him a tent to house this glory. Now, the problem with Peter's offer, I mean, it's the, it's the right inclination. Glory in the past belonged in the tabernacle. So essentially, he's offering, let me be the new Bezalel or the new Othiel who will make the blueprints for the tabernacle and I'll build it, I'll work, I'll get the donations and I'll house your glory in this tabernacle. The problem was, was that his offer was essentially, essentially huge steps backwards in God's redemptive plan. You see, Jesus, as the glorious son of God, had not come with a glory that was meant to be veiled or to be put into a tent. He came so that people could behold God's glory without the tent, without the veil. This hope is consistent with what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3. But when one trusts in the Lord, when, but when one turns in to the Lord, the veil is removed. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same, uh, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So in Jesus, here's what's happening here. As this glory is emanating, he doesn't need a new tabernacle. He doesn't need a new tent. He doesn't need a veil. He doesn't need any of these old covenant things. He's come to bring something new. He's come to pull back the veil. He's come to rip the curtains. He's come to tear down the separation fences. He's come to bring down the tent so that you could walk with the glory of God. And so that you could behold it with an unveiled face and approach the glory of God freely in Christ. Verse five says that he was still speaking when a bright cloud overshadowed them. Again, if you think back to Exodus, you know exactly what this cloud is. Or better, we know who is in this cloud. After the tabernacle was completed in Exodus 40, a bright cloud overshadowed the tabernacle and descended on it. That was, they called it God's Shekinah glory is God's visible glory in a cloud. And it overshadowed and filled the tent so thick that even Moses and the priests could not go into the tent and do their job because God's presence was so thick in the place. You see it again in second Chronicles chapter five, when the temple's built again, the shadow shows up the, the cloud shows up. It overshadows the temple, fills the temple. Priests aren't able to go into it. And now here we have the same cloud coming again. This time without temple, this time without tent, but only with Jesus. Now, I think the simple point is this. If you want to dwell with God, you no longer need tent, tabernacle, or temple. If you want to enjoy the dwelling presence of God, you need Jesus. He is the new temple. He is the place we go to meet with God and see God's glory. I mean, this is a, this is an ultimate rebuke. Peter's he's, he's pulling out his parchment. We're making blueprints for the tabernacle now. And then without the tabernacle, the, the, the cloud comes and overshadows basically shut up, Peter, I'm doing something here. And the fact that we don't have a tabernacle the fact that there's no tent and that the cloud comes down on Jesus shows that free access has been opened through him. My friends, do you hear the beauty of that message? Can I, can I just tell you that again? Access to the God of the universe, access to your creator who loves you more than anyone else in this earth could ever love you. 
Access to the God who made your insides. Access to the God who knows your future. Access to the God who wrote your days. Access to the God who knows the hairs on your head has been opened freely. And all that through Jesus Christ. Now, I just want to make a simple point of application and implication for believers. Um, It's very subtle in the text. Here it is. It's super profound. I think God does not need your suggestions. (laughs) I'm positive. I'm, I'm sure again, Peter was smart. He, he knew the old Testament scriptures. He knew that glory properly placed belonged in a tabernacle but God didn't need his suggestions for what should happen in redemptive history. God was doing something, something that was already going on, something that was already in progress. Long before the words, let there be light were spoken. This plan was already made. This moment was already settled. God has demonstrated that all we will ever need to enjoy his presence is Jesus. But think of all the ways we suggest new tabernacles. Yeah, yeah, I've got Jesus, but can I build a tent over here in my career, Lord? Surely I can experience your glory there. Yeah, yeah, I've got Jesus, but can I build a tent over here in my opinions? Surely your glory will be displayed through that, as we all know. No. The ultimate tabernacle, the ultimate temple has been given. And Jesus's glory, God's glory is housed in Christ through Jesus as in Christ that we have all we need for access with God. We don't need to fear anything, right? We don't need to fear it being taken away because we have Jesus. No man gave us Jesus. No man gave us this temple and no man can take this temple away. Jesus told the authorities, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rise it again. And he did. And we have the presence of God forever and ever. Regardless of legislation, regardless of people's actions, regardless of what people think, we have the glory of God in the temple of Jesus, who himself is God in flesh. Now, Peter, duly corrected, does the only appropriate thing When he hears the voice of God, he falls on his face and he trembles. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. God's words are saturated with redemptive significance and reveal who Jesus really is. You find three different parts to God's statement here. He is my beloved son, which points to his role as the Davidic king. My beloved son points back to Psalm 2, points back to 2 Samuel 7, where God identifies the new king David as his son, this new Davidic king. Now, the words with whom I'm well pleased can be found verbatim in Isaiah 42.1 when it's in reference to the suffering servant. So not only is Jesus the Davidic king, but he is also the suffering servant. Peter knew he was the Davidic king, but needed to hear he had also come to be the suffering servant. He wasn't one without the other, king and servant. And not only that, God says, to him you must listen. Listen. 
which points back to Deuteronomy 18.15 to the prophet who would be like Moses. King, servant, prophet. That's who Jesus was. All the redemptive roles of the Old Testament culminate and focus on Christ. This Nazarene carpenter whom so many were rejecting. They were rejecting their king. The Isianic servant who would die, who would be wounded so that they could be healed. And the prophet who would speak face to face with God. Reject though they did, God's words vindicate who he really is. Now, with all these familiar redemptive things, we do find something completely unexpected in this text. There's a lot of things that are happening in this text that show the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are things happening that are familiar with with what God has shown before, but there's some new things too. Whenever God's people saw God's cloud of glory come down, they fell down and trembled and were greatly afraid. Exodus 20 says that the people of Israel were so afraid at the sight of God's smoke and thunder that they begged Moses to go and speak to God for them. Now, throughout the scripture, there's a holy fear of God. Okay, that fear of God is always noble, always good, must always be there. And that fear of God never goes away. That's not what this fear of God is. In Exodus 20, they have a fear not even to approach God. The fear of God proper drives us to God. The fear they had in Exodus 20 drove them away from God. They didn't even want to hear God's voice. They trembled greatly. They say, you go for us, Moses. We'll stand far off over here. And then you tell us what God says. Because he terrifies us. That's what happened in Exodus 20. Now, we find something different in Matthew 17. We have the familiar mountain. So we have kind of a new Sinai. We have a familiar bright cloud. We have a familiar voice, a booming voice of God. And even a familiar reaction. The disciples fell on their faces and were terrified. But then comes a new peace. Verse seven through eight. But Jesus came and touched them. Can you imagine? You're falling on your face. You're absolutely terrified because God has shown up on the scene in the cloud. Everything in you tells you that if you behold God without the temple, without the tabernacle, without a priest, without some kind of ritual cleaning, you are dead. They expect death. That's what they expect. They're absolutely terrified. But instead of the word of God coming and slaying them dead, they get the gentle hand of Jesus touching their back. Rise and have no fear. That's interesting, isn't it? Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. What might the words rise and have no fear communicate about Jesus and what he has come to do? His words show us that Jesus has come to bring reconciliation between God and man. Those who trust in Jesus no longer need to fear approaching the presence of God. Now understand, he's not negating the fear of the Lord, the fear that drives us to God. He is negating the need to run away from God. 
He's, he's negating the fact that you no longer have to shrink back. He's canceling that out. You can now approach. What Jesus says here, rise and have no fear, paves the way for Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence, with boldness. That's the word that's used. Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Or consider Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness, confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, what then? Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, Jesus died, suffered, was buried and rose again so that you can have a bold and confident relationship with God. My friends, you don't have to be a kitten in God's presence. Why do we so often, I mean, we, we, we jump at the opportunity to speak with other people and to do other things and to, you know, do all these other things, but we're so slow to enter into the presence of God. Now, God wouldn't want to hear from me. Now, you don't understand God's run the other way from me by this point of the week. Now, the things I did on Saturday have canceled all that access out. My friends, who are we to think that our sins and our flaws and our, our rebellion, our fickleness is enough to overcome the cross of Christ? Your past, just to be frank, is not powerful enough to cancel out what Jesus did on the cross. Your sins, your sexual promiscuity, whatever it was, your addictions, your hate-filled relationship, your brokenness, all of that, quite frankly, is not strong enough to sew back the curtain that Jesus ripped. Don't give yourself that much credit. Instead, bask in the free presence of God. Come boldly. You sin, Jesus wants you to come to the throne of grace. That's why he calls it the throne of grace, the mercy seat. It's the moment when we are deep, deep in sin that we should be approaching the throne of grace. It's that moment that we feel filthy, that we should be running to the presence of God. Yes, in the past it was running from. Now we run to and we run boldly, knowing that we have a blood-bought access. So it's on this mountain that God shows his eternal purpose. And the eternal purpose is that he would make himself known through Christ so that we can have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Jesus. So friends, it's through the transfiguration that we're given a glimpse of what's to come through Jesus. Can you imagine having that image of Christ in your heart, how that might motivate you to endure all things just to see him? 
to give up life, limb, liberty, happiness, just to have Christ. To crucify it all. To die terribly. Just to have Jesus. And to go even further than that to say, yeah, my rights, my liberties, my happiness, my wealth, all these things, my prosperity are trash compared to knowing Christ. But it's by having this image of Christ that we learn to find who is more valuable than all. Who is worth more than it all. Now, as Jesus and his disciples begin to descend down the mountain, Jesus instructs his disciples to tell no one the vision. Don't tell anyone what you just saw until the son of man is raised from the dead. Now that seems strange to us. Why would Jesus, if, if I were Jesus and these people had just seen the best side of me, right? I think I would want everybody to know. Like go, go tell not just the others, right? Go tell everybody that you've just seen. Well, he says, don't tell them until after the resurrection. Why? Because they simply cannot understand what they had just seen until after the resurrection. The transfiguration makes no sense unless Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus knows that if he, if they went and they blabbed it to everyone, the moment he died, it would make that look like a big confusing mess. Maybe a lie even. Maybe a big conspiracy that Peter, James, and John wrote on the way down the mountain just to give some credential to Jesus. But it's after the resurrection that we're like, absolutely. That happened. Absolutely, he's the glorified son of God. Absolutely, he's the king. Absolutely, he's the suffering servant. Absolutely, he's the prophet like Moses. Absolutely, he's the savior for whom all the world has waited now, naturally, the disciples are scratching their heads. And why does the scribes say that Elijah must come first? So they're getting sidetracked again by all these different things. They just saw Elijah. He's not coming down with them. So, so why hasn't Elijah come first? They were absolutely right. According to Malachi chapter four, verse five through six, Elijah or a Elijah like prophet must come before the Messiah. So where is he? It's then that Jesus says, well, he's already come. But nobody recognized him. In fact, they didn't recognize him. They killed him. Now, who do you think he's talking about at that moment? John the Baptist. The Elijah-like prophet who had come preaching repentance and calling people out to repent, calling down sins of even King Herod himself and who lost his head because of it. So Jesus answers their question, but then he redirects to the cross so also will the son of man certainly suffer at their hands. Certainly suffer. Now I can imagine Peter going, uh, and then remembering that the voice from the cloud just told him to shut up and listen to Jesus. I can just imagine Peter's still probably struggling with this, but he just saw Jesus transformed into this amazing, glorious figure. And this amazing, glorious figure is going to die. Once again, Jesus centers the focus on his impending death. 
Just as the disciples will not fully understand Jesus' glory until after the resurrection, they also must view his glory through the lens of the cross. You understand that the cross magnifies the glory of Christ. It doesn't diminish it. His glory is set on full display. We might have this little glimpse of Jesus in his glory in Matthew 17, but it is in Matthew 28 when Jesus has all authority with the nail scars in his hands and the tomb that is empty, that we see Jesus' glory set on full display. As much as Peter hated the cross, as much as Peter hated Jesus talking about suffering and dying, Jesus' transfiguration on this mountain manifested the glory of the cross. It showed that it was necessary. In other words, the transfiguration unveils the hidden glory that would come through Jesus's suffering. Now let's talk about the cross, the glory and us as Christ church. As we end off this sermon, as we end off this text, we've got to ask, okay, what does all this have to do with us? Sure. Jesus is the glorious son of God. Sure. We get a preview of the resurrection. So what? Well, here it is. Peter had rightly proclaimed Jesus as the Christ, but he needed to see that Jesus was more than Peter could possibly fathom. Yes, he was the king, but he was the king and the servant. Yes, he was the lion, but he was the lion and the lamb. He was both. He would be conquered by death. And by being conquered, he would conquer the one who had the power over death. And so the transfiguration was a preview of the glory to come at the resurrection. Now in this cross-shaped glory, there are all kinds of implications for us as the church. The author of Hebrews says that it was for the joy, it was for the joy that was set before Jesus that he endured the cross. Yes, the cross lay ahead. Yes, a cold, stony tomb waited for him. But that wasn't the final destination. There were things waiting beyond the cross. There was glory and joy and ascension and a throne at the right hand of God that waited beyond all of that. Peter, in the same way, needed to learn that same lesson to know that there was joy beyond the crucifixions. He would be called to take up his cross. He would be called to die in, in a way that he never even fathomed to suffer unimaginably for the sake of Jesus. But to see that that suffering wasn't all that it, there was to see that there was a joyful glory that lies beyond the suffering. My friends, there's some of you that have suffered terribly. You have lost grandchildren we buried a son, a 31-year-old son, this last Saturday who was brutally murdered in Dallas. Some of you have incredible cancers growing in your body, and you know, and you fear. Some of you have been rejected by your family because of your faith in Jesus. My friends, yes, all those are crosses that you bear. But what happened after Jesus' cross? A resurrected, risen, glorious Savior who has promised the same for you. You may sacrifice life, limb, career, fame, comfort, wealth, safety. You know, some of you may lose your positions at your job 
because of your faith someday. That could happen. Do we trust that it's all loss and trash and rubbish compared to knowing the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus our Lord? Do we trust that? Peter would gradually come to that viewpoint. He would see that and it would be only after the resurrection that he would see and learn that Jesus' glory would not come in temple, tabernacle, or in pitch battle with Rome. His glory would come through suffering and death. And that glory is what made him willing to stand in the face of the high priest and say, you decide whether I should fear the word of men or fear God. Where do you get that kind of power from? How does a fisherman who once denied Jesus, even calling down a curse on himself to try to prove that he didn't know Jesus. How does that scaredy cat fisherman become the fisherman who looks at the very same high priest who just mass murdered his Lord and say, you decide who I should obey. It's the resurrection glory that makes those kind of people. I have friends in China at this moment who every Sunday have to decide whether they're going to go to church, not because of the COVID cases, but because of the police cars that are stationed out around the apartment building where they meet. And every week they have to decide, is it worth the fine? Is it worth getting drug out with handcuffs and watching our pastor go through another threat by the police? Our friends in China right now that are going through that, And all the ones that I know would tell you hands down, it is worth it because they know who they will see. They know who they live for. My friends, we Americans right now as American church, we we do everything to avoid suffering. Everything to avoid suffering. Failing to realize that it's through suffering that God works his best glory and his best plan. We suggest new tabernacles. We suggest new paths to get to the, to the glory that we want. And my friends, can I just share something with you? If you have a plan, a path, or desire for glory that leads away from crosses, it is not the glory of Christ that you're looking for. The glory of Christ is found in crosses, in tombs. That's where the glory of Christ leads. You must be willing to bear that cross. But know that bearing those crosses are not in vain. The gory cross leads to glory of Christ. And the glory of Christ leads to open access. Freedom to come to the presence of God. We mourn and complain at all the fears that lie ahead of us. We look at the crosses and we go, really? We have to bear that. My friends, there's some of us that are in danger of giving up the walk, giving up the way, giving up the Savior, because we know heavy crosses wait. Yes, those crosses are there. They wait you. Yes, those crosses are there, and you might die on them. You may have to nail unbelievable things to those crosses. And watch in agony as things that you love are ripped from you. But can I just point you beyond that cross? To the grave, 
then let me point you even beyond where the king returns and opens that grave. The resurrected Christ and his glory makes all suffering worth it. Let's pray. Father God, we lift up to you our hearts and souls. Father, we ask that you make us willing to suffer for your glory so that we can behold and see with free, unveiled faces the glory of our Savior.